My fellow Earthicans, we enjoy so much freedom, it's almost sickening. We're free to choose which hand our sex monitoring chip is implanted in. And if we don't want to pay our taxes, why, we're free to spend a weekend with the pain monster. See you April 15th, folks. Welcome back to the Tech Weasel Podcast for Friday, July 3rd, 2020. As always, I'm your host, Paul Husinga. Sebastian is working the board today, and Cooper is screening calls. Someday, we might actually do this live and take calls, but for now, it makes him feel like he's got gainful employment, and that helps keep him off the streets and out of trouble. This week, we're going to talk about something kind of bittersweet for me. For the first time in almost 20 years, I won't be working on a fireworks show for Independence Day. California's restrictions on public gatherings due to the COVID-19 virus basically put an end to a lot of traditional summertime events, like, you know, July 4th celebration, uh, the Del Mar Fair, and no, I will never call it the San Diego Fair, and even going to the beach. While for once I won't be supervising a show this coming weekend, in recognition of the holiday, I thought I would go into how I started in pyrotechnics and give an inside look into what goes into putting on a show. I'm also going to talk a little bit about perhaps San Diego's most notorious fireworks-related incident, the 2012 Big Bay Boom, and how that whole thing actually happened. First, a little background on my qualifications on the subject. Uh, Back in the late 1990s, I discovered model rockets as an adult, and because I never had them when I was a kid, I had zero immunity to them. I went from the little Estes black powder rockets that were a foot tall to high-power rocketry with 6-inch diameter, 14-foot-tall rockets you had to launch in the desert, in about two years. Seriously, parents, it's like the chicken pox, because the older you are when you come down with it, the more dangerous it is. Get your kid a mosquito or a Big Bertha now while they're in grade school so they don't end up like me. One of my hobbies that overlapped with high-power rocketry was photography, and at the time it was all 35mm film because digital wasn't a thing yet. So I'd haul roll upon roll of rocket pictures down to my local save-on to get them developed at their mini-lab, And as it turned out, the person who always helped me out at the photo counter was the wife of the general manager of San Diego Fireworks. In short order, You Should Meet My Husband turned into me working as a helper on my very first professional pyrotechnic show, the 1999 Holiday Bowl Halftime at Jack Murphy Stadium. Before that, I had always assumed that professional pyrotechnics was a world that was limited to a small, elite group of people working for companies that were staffed by generations of the same families. As it turns out, while the major fireworks companies are indeed all family businesses, the industry runs on an enormous amount of outside labor. Now, for most of the year, there's only enough work to keep the core employees paid, but at least in the U.S. for Independence Day, and to a lesser extent New Year's Eve, there's an enormous spike in the number of people needed to do the shows. Now, for a lot of companies, the ability to put on July 4th shows is limited by the number of part-time licensed operators and crews that can be put together for a day or two of work. And about that work, the majority of professional fireworks is actually lifting heavy things out of the back of a truck or swinging a hammer. The actual pyrotechnics part is just a small percentage of the total amount of labor necessary to put on a show, and as a result, there's a huge demand for people who are willing to work very hard for very little or sometimes no money just for the privilege of being a part of it. After I did that first show, I was hooked, and I began working on getting a basic commercial display pyrotechnics license of my own. Now, in California, that's the certification you need to be the operator in charge of an outdoor aerial fireworks show. There's actually a bunch of different license classes. There's three alone for special effects, 
Plus, there's theatrical trainee, theatrical, performer, and even three different classes for high-power rocketry. In order to get my license, I needed to have two years of work experience and be able to show that I'd worked on at least eight different shows by providing copies of the official post-display report that listed me as part of the crew. I needed to have official recommendation forms from five different licensed operators who attested to my competence and experience, as well as my character and integrity. I had to go take a test to show that I knew state laws and regulations, get fingerprinted, and undergo a background check. It's a pretty rigorous process, which is good for everyone involved. Despite that, I managed to get my license in 2001, and I've held it ever since. I've run shows from little high school homecomings and wedding receptions at a country club, through uh, doing summer fireworks at SeaWorld, all the way up to my usual big show every year for Independence Day at Rancho Bernardo High School, which typically had more than 400 individual shells plus other effects. Because of the seasonal and part-time nature of being an operator, most of us are independent contractors. Our client is the fireworks company who provides the product and equipment, secures permits for the sites, and interacts with the end customer who pays for the show. As the operator, we provide the properly licensed and experienced supervisor and labor to set up, shoot, and tear down the show. Speaking of the product, let me describe the various effects we routinely use. Something that's kind of gone out of fashion lately, which is a shame because it's really neat and it can be customized in a lot of different ways, is what's called bright work or a set piece. When you see something mounted at ground level that looks like a multicolor flag, the Statue of Liberty, or a just married couple's names, that's what I'm describing here. It's all assembled out of these little individual flares that can be made to burn in a wide variety of colors that are attached to a handmade frame that's uh, constructed out of bent rattan. There's a quick match fuse, and more on that in a minute, that connects all the pyrotechnic elements, and once it's ignited at one end of the chain, it lights all the individual pieces which burn for 30 seconds or so. Another common low-level effect is a fountain or gerb. And this is basically a device that shoots a shower of sparks into the air, and you'll see variations on this kind of effect used to create, like waterfalls from bridges or other suspended attachment points. Closely related to those are strobes, which are pretty much what they sound like. They're very intense, flashing effects that don't go anywhere. Next are comets. Now, a comet is an effect that shoots a colored star, usually with a tail of sparks, that burns out completely in flight and doesn't have a burst at the end. Pack several of these into a single tube so that they shoot out one at a time over an interval of several seconds, and you have a Roman candle. Pack a bunch of stars together into a single tube that all fly out at once, and that's called a mine. There are a lot of other specialty low-level effects like pinwheels, uh, girandolas, and saxons, but we don't typically use them, so my experience with them is pretty limited. Finally, we get to aerial shells. This is what probably comes to mind when somebody says fireworks. Uh, The basic description of a fireworks shell is a device with a lift charge to propel it out of the mortar tube and into the air, and some effect that breaks after a number of seconds in flight, hopefully at the peak of its travel. These range in size from under 2 inches in diameter to truly enormous ones a couple of feet around, but in my shows, the largest shells are typically 6 inches in diameter. The determining factor on how large an aerial shell can be on any particular show is usually how much clearance you have in your fallout zone between your launch site and the nearest person or building, and that's all baked into California's laws. One thing I always get asked is, how high do they go? A good rule of thumb is 100 feet of lift for every inch of diameter, but that's just an approximation. The shells themselves are manufactured both in the U.S. and overseas, primarily China for less elaborate and less expensive effects, and Italy for high-end specialty shells, and they come in a bewildering variety of names and descriptions. 
On the simple end of the scale, there's what we call color shells that are a simple round break of a single color. A lot of the vocabulary used to describe the effects comes from flowers, so a red main break with a blue center might be called a red chrysanthemum with blue pistol, and a white plain color shell might be a silver peony. By making the stars inside the shell with different layers, like the candy coating on the outside of an M&M, you can have shells that change color as they burn. By carefully arranging the stars inside the shell and surrounding them with an inert filler, you can make shells that produce different shapes like uh, hearts, smiley faces, letters, rings, or even ones that look like the retcon death uh, star explosion in Star Wars. Now one thing you can't do is make them always come out right side up because the shells will inevitably spin and tumble on their way up. You can have multi-break shells that have more than one main burst or shells that split into smaller shells that then break again. Now one of my favorite effects is called dragon eggs where a shell breaks with a crackling effect and then a dozen smaller multicolored breaks appear beneath it. A shell that breaks into curved streamers of golden sparks that hang in the air is a willow and if the shell has a tail effect as it rises, and we'll talk about that here in a second, it's a palm tree. You can also have special effects like crossets, which are stars that break into streamers at the end of their flight, whistles, which are self-explanatory, and bees or fish, which are tiny rocket-propelled stars that dart around at random. And of course there are salute shells, which detonate with an extremely loud report and a blinding white flash. Now because those particular kind of shells are inherently more energetic and dangerous when they break, under California law they're limited to smaller shell diameters. Practically any shell can also have a tail, which is simply one or more pucks of the same kind of composition that comets are made of, glued to the outside of the shell. Now when the shell is launched, the lift charge blow-by ignites the tail and it leaves a trail of sparks or other effects behind it as it rises. Really complicated shells can even have their own miniature comet launch tubes attached, so they shoot them off to the sides on the way up. There are countless variations of aerial shells, and every manufacturer uses different terms to describe similar effects, so it can get to be a bit confusing if you're trying to sort out what a shell will look like just based on a label. Fortunately, the company I contract for relies on a very detailed database for the shell manufacturers they buy from. For a product that's essentially handmade, Professional fireworks are remarkably uh, consistent and reliable, which is important if you're trying to choreograph a show to music or if you want to create a specific look. One thing that's really grown in popularity over the years I've been doing this are multi-shot devices, which are colloquially, colloquially referred to as slabs or cakes. For anybody who's messed with consumer-grade fireworks, these would be really familiar. They're a cluster of tubes with a single ignition point, and we use a lot of them because they're easy to set up and they can deliver some really cool effects. For finales, we have big ones with a cluster of relatively big 2.5-inch tubes to help fill in the space in the air below the uh, individual larger shells, and some of the really sophisticated ones have as many as 300 smaller shots that produce ripple, fan, or Z effects as they go off. Now let's take a minute to talk about how aerial shells are launched. Back in the really bad old days, the mortar tubes were all made of steel, Everything was fired by hand, and there were reload shows where some poor bastard sat at a ready box with a theoretically fireproof cover over the opening, handing out shells to runners who would take them to be dropped in previously fired tubes in the middle of the show. In the just sort of bad old days, mortar tubes would either be buried in trenches or placed in prefabricated trough boxes filled with sand. Fortunately, these days, everything I do is shot out of wooden racks, with high-density polyethylene mortar tubes, which are far easier to set up and a lot safer. 
HDPE is the material of choice for mortar tubes because the plastic formula required by law is engineered to stretch and split instead of shatter should something go really wrong. That way you don't get uh, fragments and shrapnel. The pre-built racks that hold the tubes are also made to a specification that keeps the mortar separated and secure, and they're easy to nail together into blocks that won't come apart or tip over. About 75% of the actual labor involved in doing a show comes from getting the racks out of the truck, setting them up in the right arrangements, and nailing the supports to the bottom or chaining racks into blocks, then taking everything apart again after the show is fired and putting them back on the truck. Alright, so actually firing the show. For hand firing, a shell will have a long leader made out of quick match, which is basically cotton thread saturated with fast-burning black powder, inside a paper wrapper. When the shell is loaded into the mortar, this quick match leader extends up and out of the tube, and the free end hangs out to one side, and it's got a spark-resistant cover on the end that protects a couple of inches of exposed match. The process for hand firing is basically to use one hand to pull off the cover, then touch the flame from a road flare to the match. In a matter of an instant, the match burns all the way down into the tube and lights the lift charge, which then pushes the shell out of the tube and starts the time fuse for the brake charge inside the shell. Very early on in hand-fired shows, I learned to check every liter on every shell before the show, though, because sometimes the manufacturers will play a little practical joke on you and put a piece of cannon fuse on the end instead of leading, leaving bare quick match. Then when you pull a cover and light it, it sits there and slowly burns for a couple of seconds. Now this gives you just enough time to think you didn't actually light it and turn back around to face the mortar to give it a second try, only to have it finally go off right in your face. You know, cutting off the cannon fuse made hand firing somewhat less unpleasant and a bit safer for the person shooting. Fortunately, I haven't had to hand fire a show, even a small one, in many years, because even on Independence Day, the company has plenty of analog electrical or digital electronic firing systems to go around. With both of these kinds of systems, an electric match, also sometimes called a squib, is inserted into the quick match close to the shell. When a current runs through the wires, it causes it a big spark that initiates the pyrotechnic chain. It only takes a very small amount of current to fire an electric match. You can actually do it with a single AA battery. As a matter of fact, even using the resistance or continuity check setting on a multimeter can be enough to do it. For safety, until the wiring is connected to the firing system, the ends of the leads for all the matches are shunted together so that it's almost impossible for a stray current to accidentally set off the match. In an old-school electric analog firing system, all the matches get wired into strips, which are a legacy from the days of trough firing when everything was laid out into a long line, or into modules. The equipment, the equipment I use typically has 50 individual circuits per module or strip, so if a show has, say, 320 cues total, you'd need seven strips or modules to fire the whole thing. Now, a cue can be more than one effect fired at the same time. As I mentioned, it doesn't take a lot of voltage or current to set off a match, so multiple matches can be wired into a single queue. The modules are each connected back to the firing board by cables that contain a separate hot connector for each queue, and the neutral side of the circuit is completed by a separate run of shared wiring that interconnects between all the modules for redundancy. There's a lot of different designs for firing boards, but they'll all incorporate some kind of safe arm switch, a way to test the continuity of each circuit with a galvanometer that uses an extremely tiny current that won't fire the match, and individual momentary switches or contacts for each cue. The electric boards I've always used work kind of like an operation game. There are separate metal pads for each circuit and a probe that you touch to these pads to either test continuity or fire that cue in the show, depending on how that switch is set. 
As you might imagine, a 400 cube board is pretty big. Electrically, they're very simple and reliable, and they're very safe when they're operated properly. For an electrically fired show that's choreographed to music, I'll get a separated, uh, coordinated soundtrack that is just cues with warnings to stand by, then individual cue numbers timed out to match the music the crowd hears. Now, because the shells take a few seconds to fire, reach altitude, and break, the cues actually have to come ahead of when the effect is supposed to happen. Thanks to that database I mentioned earlier, and good quality control during the manufacture of the shells, it's not hard to precisely match the breaks to the music. It's even possible to have a bunch of different shows in widely separated locations coordinated this way to the same soundtrack on broadcast radio by sending all the firing sites the same cues. The current state of the art is digital firing systems. The effects are still set off by electric current using the same kind of squibs, but instead of an operator manually cueing each one, it's all pre-programmed into a system. The operator basically just has to hold down a dead man switch to keep the show firing in the pre-planned sequence and timing. Now, should anything go wrong, just releasing that switch brings everything to an immediate halt. By coordinating the cues to a digital timecode signals, multiple sites can be linked together via radio to synchronize all of them. Depending on the type of system, the operator can also fire individual cues under manual control, fire blocks of cues, or practically anything else you can imagine. That flexibility, though, can lead to some unexpected consequences, which brings me to the tale of San Diego's infamous 2012 Big Bay Boom Independence Day show, where 25 minutes of cues all went off at once from multiple barges out in the bay. First of all, I want to say the pyro company responsible for that event is not the one that I contract for. In fact, my understanding is that they underbid us to do that show. In the first few weeks afterwards, there was a lot of speculation about how it could have happened. There were a lot of guesses and rumors from people I know in the industry and the fire authority, but the most likely cause was that something had gone badly wrong with the time code, and as a result, instead of stretching out the firing commands over 20-plus minutes, they'd all been sent at once. A couple of years ago, I ran across a post on Reddit from somebody who claimed to have worked with the same firing system for a sister company to the one that was responsible, and here's what he had to say. The show was run on a Fire 1 console with the Fire All Spares options enabled. After the shooter ran a full time code check, the clock on the Fire 1 was left at the end of the show. The console was armed before receiving a lower time code value, and having seen that A, none of the pieces were fired due to the system not being armed, B, the time code was past the finale queue, and C, Fire All Spares was enabled, the console did what it was programmed to do. It fired every shell, because at that point, every shell was a spare. Fire One has since released a version of their software that mitigates this by requiring all shots to actually be fired from an armed system while timecode is running, before the fire all spares option will function. Okay, so that explanation makes total sense. And in and of itself, fire all spares is actually a good safety practice, because it's dangerous to clear an unfired shell from a mortar tube at the end of the show. Here, though, it led to what could have been a disaster, as my understanding is that there were personnel on, bo on board the barges in the firing shacks at the time. I would personally not want to be underneath that mess, whether I had cover or not. One thing you'll also notice in the videos of the incident is that in addition to the initial lift, aerial shells continue to fire for several seconds afterwards. Now, from what I gather, the company that put on the display had a policy of using pyrotechnic delays in addition to electrically fired shells. In other words, uh, one cue would be shot by the digital system, 
which would then ignite a delay fuse that would set off a second shell after a pause, and so on and so forth. It's one way to get more effective cues out of a finite number of electrical circuits, sort of like firing a multi-shot cake off a single cue, but in giant scale. Now, knowing how many cues must have been fired almost simultaneously when the command to clear the spares was sent, what really impresses me was their system's ability to supply enough current for hundreds of electric matches per module at all at once. I doubt the system I use would be able to do it. So that's the story of my long, mostly uneventful career as a professional pyrotechnician and San Diego's most infamous fireworks show. I hope you enjoyed it, and if any of this sounds like fun, hopefully next year you'll have the opportunity to work on a crew for an Independence Day show. That's it for this week. Until next time, be sure to visit techweasel.com for all the latest nonsense, and I hope that even with things as screwy as they are right now, you find a satisfying way to celebrate our nation's 244th birthday. Now I need you to stay right there